Welcome to the Yogi Therapist Podcast, where we talk all things mental health, personal growth, and spiritual development. I'm your host, Rachel, a psychotherapist and yoga teacher based in Sydney. This is your space to gain new insights and tools so that you can live a life that feels aligned and meaningful. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Yogi Therapist Podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by Jimmy Whiteman, um, also known as That Meditation Guy. I found his page on the Instagram Explore page probably like four years ago, um, followed him and stalked him ever since. And now not only are you guys getting the chance to meet him for the first time, I am getting the chance to meet him for the first time. So I'm so excited. I'm so grateful that you're here. Um, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really lovely to meet you after all these years of um, sharing messages and seeing all the memes that you post. That's how <laughs> I think of you, actually, the meme queen. <laughs> you know, some people don't know me as that. Some people follow me for my psych yoga content, which is fair enough, but I had a whole other life before this. Um, yeah, my passion, my second passion next to psychotherapy really is producing good quality memes and putting them out in the world. It feels a little bit like my dharma. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed that. <laughs> so I thought before we dive into all of the juicy goodness of meditation, I would love to just let people get a sense of who you are um, and how you came to be so passionate and well-versed in the topic of meditation? Sure. Well, it all started in the early 2000s, I would say. So in my early 20s. So I'm 43 now. But in the early 2000s, I was really into the partying and clubbing scene. I used to go to Ibiza a lot. I used to DJ, not anywhere big, but after parties and things like that. Now, some of my friends did. They would... Uh, DJ their own club nights and festivals and things. And I was just part of a big circle of friends that were into house music and techno. And as <laughs> some of your followers might know, if you live that lifestyle for long enough and you burn the candle at both ends, you can run into some mental health problems. Mm. And that's what happened to me. I, um, I started to suffer from chronic insomnia yeah. and that led to bouts of depression. I was quite up and down. And then I started to use alcohol mostly to help me sleep. But of course, that has its own kind of spiraling effect. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do something about this. And I think because of the, the period it was, uh, at that time, people wouldn't necessarily, if you're a male in 2007, you wouldn't necessarily go to a therapist or a doctor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you would be more likely to look on Google or try and figure it out yourself because there was, in my mind anyway, there was something kind of shameful about admitting to having these problems. And yeah. um, in a way, I didn't think of them as problems. I just thought, oh, I, I like a drink, you know, a couple of bottles of red wine every night. Mm -hmm. um, so this was it. I, I started Googling around, looking for something that might help me. And meditation seemed like a good option because it was scientifically proven. And this appealed to me because I was not spiritual in any way at the time. I fully identified as an 
atheist and I uh, liked Richard Dawkins and all those people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I, I really liked that aspect of meditation, that it was some scientifically proven way to deal with all my problems. Mm-hmm. I could do it quietly without anybody knowing. And um, also I'd traveled quite a lot. I used to work in the travel industry. So I'd been to Asia and I'd walked around all these temples and I'd seen these monks walking around looking very peaceful. And I'd, something had got into my psyche there where I thought, oh yeah, these guys look relaxed and calm. And I wonder if there's something in this meditation, you know? Um, so it started there and it started with some guided sleep meditation CDs. Didn't really do much. I tried a mindfulness course and at first that didn't work for me, although I love mindfulness and I teach it now. Mm. But what did work for me was, um, a course on something called Vedic meditation, which is also known as transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I went along, I did a course live with somebody who lived near me back in West London, uh, in a group. And it was just four days long, but after four days, my life was on a completely new path. I was sleeping like a baby. Mm. My mind was clear. I just, I just felt like a, a completely new person. And I thought, wow, I, I have to keep this up. This can't be another thing that um, was a phase, you know. So I just became very dedicated. Only twenty minutes twice a day. That's all you do when you do that kind of meditation. Mm. But that was enough to create a a huge shift in my mind and my body. Mm, and it sounds as though the benefit of it was quite immediate and obviously quite large. Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was one of those things where it just happened. In It, it was just very profound, my first experience of meditating with a mantra. Um, I must admit, when I first got to this class, I was a bit unsure, you see, because the website said it was scientifically proven, but suddenly I was in there and this lady was showing a picture of her guru, this Indian guru in a frame. And we were bowing down and giving fruits and flowers and she was yeah. singing a song in Sanskrit. <laughs> and I just thought, what, where have I come to? What is this? Um, Richard so Dawkins would be shaking his head in shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He would not approve. I was very skeptical, but also I paid the money and it was non-refundable. So I thought, right, I'm just going to stick with it. <laughs> Uh, see where this goes. And um, sure enough, after that, it became very down to earth. But when she gave us this mantra, well, what happens is she took me into a little room on my own, gave me the mantra there, and then brought me out, uh, told me how to meditate, and then took somebody else in. So you get the mantra in secret. Now, a mantra in this kind of meditation is a soothing sound with a vibrational quality. That's how you think of it. Mm -hmm. And just repeat this very gently in the mind. That's how it starts. And yeah, I just found there were thoughts around. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't some transcendent experience. But I just found I got very, very calm and very quiet inside quite quickly. And I even found that I was falling asleep while doing the mantra in the room. And I thought, well, this will do, you know, because oh, I was only there for sleep problems at first. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, if if this is enough to relax me in the evenings, then this is going to work. Mm. But what I found was after the four days, I could just go, go to bed, close my eyes and just fall asleep like a normal person. Um, I didn't even have to use the, the meditation like at all because my nervous system had suddenly switched out of being excited into de-excited. All my thoughts had calmed down. And um, yeah, it was just a, a revelation. It was very, very profound for me. And 
it was something that I'm just so glad that I walked into that room and did that on that day because mm. otherwise I don't know where my life would be right now. Mm. I'm curious because you said um, that your nervous system was obviously quite excited and that makes a lot of sense given the scene that you were in. It's lots of it's lots of stimulation. That's the point. That's why we go there. The loud music, the flashing lights, the people around us, the drinking. And I imagine that if you were doing that consistently, that your your nervous system would be very uh, comfortable in that state, would be very prone um, to sensitivity in that state. I'm curious. So you were you started this Vedic transcendental meditation. Were you still in that lifestyle when you were doing the meditation? Did they coincide or did this come afterwards? Um, good question. So I was I was less into that scene at the time. I'd gotten to that age where my friends were getting more into their jobs or getting married and having kids. So it, we, I wasn't going clubbing every single weekend at that point. Mm-hmm. No, um, things had definitely calmed down. So I, I would still go out and drink and be social and things like that. But one of the things about doing this course was they say, okay, for these four days, you have to follow some rules. Uh, you have to cut out alcohol cut out caffeine, and then also, if possible, try and cut out anything that could put any stress on the nervous system whatsoever, even down to if you're going to watch TV, watch a romantic comedy over an action film, things like that. You know, they said stay off your phone, only eat um, healthy foods. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll I'll really give it a go. So for Mm -hmm. those four days, I really took it seriously. I lived on my own at the time and I worked for myself. So it was very easy for me actually to just really chill out for those days. Mm. Um, wasn't in a relationship. So no <laughs> partner there to ramp in. up your nervous system. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I just took it very easy, stuck to the meditation, did what they said. And it was a complete turnaround in how I felt. Mm. And so um, after the meditation course was done, I didn't want to pick up caffeine again. I didn't drink again for months. Um, so that the effect was really powerful on my life, life outside meditation. And I took some time off, um, even being social, going to the pub and things like that as well. And yeah, it just, it, it was interesting because I didn't have to use any willpower to make these changes. Mm-hmm. I had some beers in the fridge and I remember thinking about a month after the course, wow, these beers are like still here in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas before they wouldn't have lasted, you know, a night. So Mm. it was a very organic and a very natural shift. Yeah. Well, it sounds as though what happened was, you know, your nervous system was in this state for such a prolonged period of time. And then you had a, a really deep somatic experience that it could be different. You know, you got to slip into a different state and it wasn't just a cognitive knowing that you could be calmer, you could be, you know, less chaotic in your mind and in your body. You got to feel that and and live that. And that makes a lot of sense that once you're able to experience that kind of inner stillness, that the, you know, the drinking and the partying wouldn't necessarily look as tempting as it did prior to that experience. I think that's uh, exactly right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And there was an element to this as well, where there was a very subtle feeling of bliss that came mm-hmm. with this meditation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to lose that. So 
there became an element of uh, kind of wanting to keep this going, this bliss. I used to say to my friends at the time, yeah, this meditation thing, it's like I'm taking happy pills, but without actually taking the pills. (laughs) So it was that big of a change for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I must admit there was a, a kind of honeymoon period. So it didn't stay so intense um forever after a couple of months it became a normal part of my routine i got used to how it felt and um i would say then you know some bad habits came back like eating junk food and things and but i i never fully went back to um getting hammered every night <laughs> mm-hmm. although i i did you know sometimes on the weekend like overindulge and things did go back to normal to some degree but I'd I'd lost that sense of hopelessness and I'd I wasn't an insomniac anymore and the depression mm. had lifted. So I was just kind of more of a normal kind of guy around my age in that in that group, mm. um, not struggling with life as much. Yeah. Um and it wasn't until a few years later that I actually started to think about becoming a meditation teacher. For quite a few years, meditation was just something I did 20 minutes twice a day mm-hmm. just to, you know, keep things um, chugging along smoothly, so to speak. It sounds as though you got to a point where meditation was almost like taking your vitamins, going for your walk. It was that, you know, little action that you have to do daily to kind of just keep you grounded and keep your head above the water or just keep you balanced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The uh, the Indian yogi who brought this practice to the world, you see this practice comes from the Himalayas really, mm-hmm. and it goes back thousands of years. But back in the 1960s, this Himalayan yogi brought this into the West and started teaching as many people as possible. So there are plenty of people out there who teach this kind of meditation. And he used to have this phrase where he would say, water the root to enjoy the fruit. So he was suggesting that when you meditate, it's like you're nourishing this inner part of you, which will then manifest in your life outside of uh, your your outer life, your your actions. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of going inwards and you're getting this nourishment from the meditation, from the deep rest the meditation gives you, really. Mm-hmm. And then as you come out of the meditation and you go about your various activities, that inner sort of nourishment, that inner quiet, that inner peace will then be sort of transferred outward through your actions. Mm. So he had lots of these little phrases like uh, water the root to enjoy the fruit and things like that. I love that. Um, <laughs> and it, it really did uh, work for me quite well, yeah. I noticed that you said you tried a few different types of meditation. So you did your sleep CDs, which were no help. You did mindfulness. And then you eventually stumbled upon the, the Vedic meditation why were you so persistent when initially it wasn't working? There must have been, I guess, some kind of, in, I don't know, it may have been an intuitive call or it may have just been that you'd read so many times online that science backed it. But it sounds as though when you, you tried and those first few times didn't necessarily click, you kept going back, you kept looking. Why do you think that was? I think the reason that it was in my mind that meditation does work or would work is because I used to be in the travel industry for quite a number of years and I traveled around Asia and visited a lot of temples um, just because it's one of those things that you did, you know, in the day you go and do some cultural stuff, in the evening you go out party. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I remember seeing these monks in various places like in Thailand and Cambodia Mm. and 
they just always looked so happy and so peaceful. And I think it got into my head like, oh, one day I'll, I'll try that meditation. I'd done a bit of yoga and I thought, oh, this feels good. And um, I think that's what put it into my head. I think mm. the there was this stereotypical idea of a, a monk peacefully sitting by a stream, you know, with a smile on their face and a kind of transcendent kind of look. I had this image in my mind of, oh, I wonder if uh, there's something to that. Mm. Um, but it took a few years until I actually tried it. <laughs> and that's so amazing that their existence itself is a transmission, that you, they didn't even have to say anything, just this energy and this stillness that they had clearly embodied speaks to people and draws people in without anything needing to be said. I had such a, I had a pretty similar experience to you. I remember when I was young, um, <clears throat> I grew up quite Christian and um, I always had this fascination with Buddhism and I think it was the same thing. It just looked really peaceful. I mean, I was Catholic and Catholicism can be quite intense and, <laughs> and brutal. Um, and I remember my mum took us all to India when, when I was 11 and we went um, to Varanasi. And I remember seeing these like very skinny Indian men wearing very little on the side of the river meditating. And I remember at that point I turned to mum and I was like, can I be a Christian and a Buddhist, not even realizing that they're not Buddhist, they're probably Hindu. And she's like, yeah, you can, you can be whatever you want. And I was like, great. And I remember just having this sense, and I kind of wish I listened to it, that if I start meditating, I'm going to figure things out early and all the problems that will come in my life as I get older, I can beat it to the punch. Now, that's not really how that works. <laughs> but yeah, I just I just had this, this calling that, that there was something here that they just looked calm. They looked like they had some kind of answer that a lot of people are searching for. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had maybe a similar intuition. Yeah. Yeah. It's like little statues of Buddha. I used to look at them in, in shops and think like, well, what is this? What is this about? You know, there was just something that really intrigued me. Mm, mm. I think there's something about the stillness. I mean, I probably have, I have an obnoxious amount of Buddhas in my house. I probably up to like 15 at this point. Um, but there is just something that it reflects. I think there is that sense of, of inner calm and bliss that intuitively people know that they can access, but maybe don't know, know how. I'm curious, you, you said that you had an experience of bliss. Could you explain that? That might be a hard one. It's kind of like explaining what love is, but <laughs> what what did that bliss feel like? Well, I can tell you what I used to say at the time. So the way I would explain it to my friends <laughs> is I would say it reminds me a little bit of as if you've taken a small amount of ecstasy, not enough to have you all over the place, but enough to have this like feeling of Ah, I just want to hug everyone. <laughs> that is not the answer I was expecting, but that's actually I know, the I know. perfect answer. No, it is. Yeah. <laughs> but that was my reference point at the time. Um yeah. so yeah, it was that that's the way I used to explain it. Mm. Um I don't really think of it in those terms now. It's just that we're going back talking about the early days. Mm. Um because I, I use meditation in, in lots of different ways nowadays, as you know. Um, but in the early days, that's exactly how I used to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. That was a perfect answer. So how would you define meditation and what do you think are some common misconceptions of it? Because I think a lot of 
um, people's hesitation or resistance to meditating it kind of comes from a place of not understanding what it is? Good question. So these days I think of meditation as a little bit like exercise. If you think of the word exercise, it doesn't really tell you much. If you say I did some exercise, what what did you do? Run a marathon? Did you lift weights? Did you go swimming? Could be anything. Similarly with meditation, it doesn't tell me a lot about what you actually did. Did you do some kind of technique? Did you just sit in stillness? And so nowadays I organize the different types of meditation into four different categories. And this is based on a teacher of mine called Shinzen Young, who I discovered um, much later after um, I'd learned initially the transcendental meditation. And this way of categorizing meditation gives you four different categories. So they are appreciate, transcend, nurture positivity, and express. So some meditation practices will be just about appreciating experience as it is. For example, um, if you meditate on the breath or on physical sensations or on a candle flame, you will be appreciating that, that sensation or that thing, whatever it is, exactly as it is. And you will just allow your mind to rest on that. And that will sort of draw you into being absolutely present. It will train your mind to stay with the thing as it is. And that's what a lot of people think of meditation as, is the appreciate quadrant. (laughs) But there are other ways to meditate. So the other category, like I said, was transcend. Well, actually, the meditation that we've been talking about here with the mantra is actually um, a practice that would land in that category, the transcend category. You use the mantra in this very specific way in order to take you take your awareness away from the surface level of the mind where thoughts are fully formed, fully verbalized, and to transcend this normal, familiar way of being and go into a deeper aspects of mind and even have an experience of no mind. And other practices go in there as well, but that's the most obvious obvious one because it's literally transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, category three, we'll call it nurture positivity. And this would be things like loving kindness meditation mm. or gratitude practice. These are all different ways to take those qualities which are already there and to amplify them. And there are lots of different ways to do that. But anytime you're nurturing positivity, you're working in that particular area. And then finally, this is the one that's a little bit odd. People don't always get this straight away. Uh, My teacher Shinzen calls this express. So this is about paying attention to the spontaneous, just happening quality of, um, of life, really, of your experience. And this is most notable in Zen practice. Mm-hmm. I've never spent any time in a Zen monastery, but my teacher has, and he talks about it a lot. And he says, one of the things that happens there is everything's very highly ritualized, mm-hmm. the way you... Um, cook the food and the way you do the work in the garden and the way you make your bed. And he said, it's done in this way because you do things the same every single day. And after a while, you start to pick up on the way your body just knows how to do everything without your mind being involved. And it's another way of recognizing that the sense of you being a, a doer, knower, controller in your head, operating everything 
isn't really how things are. It's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> the sense of self um, isn't as isn't as cut and dried as it seems to be. And so meditation can be a way of actually investigating the nature of self. Mm. And uh, that's where the express practices come into it. The, mm. the spontaneous expressive nature of, um, of life can be recognized in some of those practices. Mm. So there are your four categories of meditation. Any meditation practice at all will fit somewhere on that particular map. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds as though with, all four of those styles. It's about learning to pay attention to what's in front of you and what's within you. Um, you know, I think what's so interesting about your story, and I think it's the story of so many people, is that there's so much internal mess that it becomes so unbearable that it actually forces us to stop and, and pay attention. You know, I think there's so much pleasure in life. There's so much stuff and um, there's so many things going on externally that it's very easy to um, get wrapped up in it, to identify with it. And it's not really until the internal stuff um, gets heavy enough or unbearable enough that we actually stop and and have a look at the nature of our mind, you know, and I think it can actually be such a blessing in disguise because, you know, if we're able to slow down and look inward and look inward with compassion and, and curiosity and learn to have a different relationship with our mind, our life fundamentally shifts, you know, the smallest things that can be so much joy and, and richness where maybe once we missed it because we simply weren't paying attention. Of all the things that meditation has given you, and it's clear that there's a lot, what do you think has been one of the most impactful things? Wow, this is a big question. Sorry. It's like <laughs> saying which child do you love the most? <laughs> um, okay, let's see if I could explain this. So my whole thing started out, as you know, with the mental health, yeah. um, trying to solve those problems. And then it moved on to, oh, how good could I actually feel? How blissed out could I actually get if I start going on retreats and things like that? And then that shifted into, oh, what is the nature of consciousness? Mm. I realized that this was a mystery scientifically at some point. And then I, th I started to think, oh, okay, so maybe maybe meditation could actually give you real insight into the nature of consciousness in a way that science can't and maybe maybe i could learn something there and this rabbit hole just got so deep <laughs> so quick mm -hmm. that it just it just became almost a bit of an obsession of trying to have an awakening which in zen is called kensho or satori it's a sudden awakening and I got really fascinated by this idea of a sudden awakening. Mm. And I wanted to see if I could um, have that myself. And so I started doing retreats and practices, um, meditating on a question like, who am I? And things like that to see if I could, I could make this thing happen. Because mm. I'd read lots of Zen poetry and um, these Zen stories about these people who have these this awakening. So it was clearly a real thing because people across time and across the globe have had this experience and they've all talked about it in different ways, but clearly they're talking about something similar. 
but at the same time, they can't really express it because it's a non-conceptual experience. So usually they use symbolism. If you ever read these Zen stories, they'll talk about, you know, seeing the beautiful moon or the moonlight. This is a symbol for this, this inexpressible thing, this sudden awakening. So I got really into that. And um, at one point I was on a meditation retreat. I was meditating on this question, who am I? Now, when you meditate on a question like that, you're not going up into thoughts, trying to work things out. The question works on you. You don't work on the question. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It, it's If you think you know or you try and figure it out in your mind, it's just the wrong place to look to find this out. Even after the awakening, the mind doesn't understand what happened. The awakening happens yeah. on a different level of knowing. Um, I would love to... I'm, I would love to just pause here and dig because um, I'm in a practice of, I guess, because I've done a lot of somatic work about doing that, of asking the body the question and, you know, the mind wants to jump in and answer and, um, you know, just allowing the body, your intuition to speak. I've been doing it for years and it, it at this point it comes quite quick, but I know that there are clients of mine who, when I say, you know, I ask them the question, I can see it. Their, their mind jumps in and, and answers. So how does one um, allow the body to answer or allow the question to work on them, as you so eloquently said, as you know, without the mind jumping in and being like, hey, I got this one? It's a good question. Well, the, the mind will talk. So the mind will will come in and give all sorts of answers to the question. And that's kind of the problem in a way is that it will try and convince you that you already know the answers to the questions. Mm. Um, and you have to find a way of sitting in what's in Zen is called don't know mind. Mm. Um, if you spend time in that place of not knowing, then a kind of inner wisdom can arise and you'll start having insights, all sorts of mm. insights into the nature of who you are and, yeah, what this is, so to speak. Yeah. But a, a really big awakening kind of isn't your choice. So it's one of those things that when it does happen, you'll suddenly realize like, oh, that was, this had nothing to do with skill. It's not really an achievement. It feels like it was just the right time for mm -hmm. it to happen. That's the only way I can describe it. It's very, very mysterious, but it certainly happens. Um, to people who who go after it because it's happened to me and it's happened to people I've been in a room with and it's almost impossible to explain it but I'll give it a go <laughs> <laughs> it's um what what it is is that there's um it's like there's a mechanism happening all the time in the mind which is creating a familiar sense of self so if I say to myself okay who am I and I try and put my attention on myself. There's a familiar sense of being Jimmy right here, right now, which is always kind of like this. Um, all the time, if I just look back, I feel like, okay, I'm a, I'm a person in space, kind of separate from everything else. And I'm sort of up here in my head most of the time, but I also have a body. You know how it is, right? Well, there's a situation that can happen where that familiar sense of self can almost just switch off. And you can then experience your, it's like the nature of consciousness. It's like pure awareness yeah. without 
that familiar sense of self being there at all. Mm. And it's very, very strange. It's um, it's like a very pure, very still, very mm. perfect experience. That's funnily enough the word that I used at the time, because in my case, it happened when I was sitting opposite a Zen master and he triggered it. He said, tell me who you are. And then suddenly everything just changed. And I, I, I said something like, um, oh, I'm, I'm me. I'm not Jimmy though. I'm, I'm the mm. real me. Because <laughs> mm. I was almost lost for words in the moment. Yeah. And he said something like, um, um, and what's it like? And I said, oh, it's, it's just all perfect. It's all perfect. Mm -hmm. And that that's how it was uh, in that moment. So it it was very much exactly like you would imagine these, these old stories talk about these moments of, um, of awakening. It was exactly like you might imagine in those stories. Although at the same time, it was, it was very surprising for me because I had this feeling that before it happened, I had this thought that it was Jimmy who was going to work wake up and have a special experience but it was actually jimmy that switches off the sense of being jimmy that switches off and it's the kind of primordial perfection that's always there um that kind of shines through so yeah. it's it's impossible to explain but it, it's something along those lines so for me that that's the most profound thing that's ever happened and it's it's completely life-changing in a sense because after a while the familiar sense of being you comes back and everything's a bit more normal but you never really can get caught up in the drama of life and in the drama of being you and your emotions and getting what you want in life in quite the same way because um when you do come back to your normal sense of self things have been rearranged things have shifted and changed and changed to such a degree that you've seen life from a, a different perspective now. And sure, you'll get triggered from time to time. You can experience uncomfortable emotions. You can even get angry sometimes, but you'll never be quite as tangled up as you used to be because you, um, you've just seen life from a, a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I haven't meditated in a little while and you are selling me on picking up that, <laughs> picking up, <laughs> waking up once again. Um, I want to see if I have understood you correctly. So I'm going to summarize what I think you've said and let me know if I've got it right. When your teacher asked you, who are you? And you said, um, you know, I am me. I'm not Jimmy. We are all uh, consciousness and and things arise in consciousness and we make the mistake of identifying with the stories that uh, are played out and identifying and attaching to those stories. I am a therapist. I am a partner. I am an X, Y, Z. That is who I am. But in fact, all of those things are simply happening within the space of consciousness. And it's more accurate to see yourself as consciousness itself rather than what plays um, out within it. Almost like you know, if you think about um, a fishbowl, we think we are the fish or, um, you know, we're swimming around, we're, we're living our best fish life, um, so much so that we don't even notice that we're in a bowl and that we're in the water. And to wake up or to have that our home moment is to realize you're not the fish or the water, you're actually the bowl that's containing and holding your experience. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a really, really nice way to put it. 
um the only thing i would say is though is in the awakening mm. you really recognize the nature of the bowl in a way that was hidden from you before mm. and so it's like it isn't like uh the jimmy character wakes up in the moment of awakening it's like the jimmy character switches off and something else wakes up i would say it that way yes and so this and then that recognition of that other thing that woke up you think ah oh, that's the real me ah okay mm. so in a sense in that moment it was like i realized my whole life had been a a case of mistaken identity mm. i thought i was this jimmy guy but actually yeah. i'm this other thing i'm this this warm awake unbound infinite presence that's how it feels there's there's something about this experience which seems like it's outside of space and time and it has a, a very limitless unbound quality to it mm. and it also is very familiar you suddenly realize oh it's always like this i'm just overlooking it all the time mm. the sense the familiar sense of being me is just in the way and obscuring this true way of how it actually always is all the time yeah and so that's one of the reasons why people burst out laughing when they have an awakening because you just burst out hysterically laughing because it's like oh my god all this time i i thought things were a certain way and actually this is really how they are wow and um that's that can stay for a while some people might have it for a few seconds some people might have it for a few hours in my case i was lucky i had that for a few days and at some point self referential thinking switch back on mm -hmm. familiar sense of being jimmy came back mm -hmm. and um there was a little bit of a sadness at that point because i thought oh no i really liked <laughs> i really I liked, liked the, other, the one. other way yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely had a preference for the other way yeah. but things never fully go back to normal yeah. after that yeah. so in buddhism they call that stream entry if you have that experience it means you've entered the stream and the stream will now sort of start to take you to where you wanted to go so that's a first initial awakening that puts you on a road to deeper awakenings so there's pretty much nothing you can do to stop it now your your insight is going to just deepen and deepen and deepen whereas before that you're you've got to try and get that first insight for the enlightenment or awakening process to even get started mm. um so we've gone along we've traveled a long way now from the mental health side of meditation yeah and i knew um, <laughs> we'd get here because i'm like okay i want this podcast to be helpful to people and now i'm literally just using you for my own uh my own questions i have so sorry if this has turned really nerdy guys but i'm having a good time so i would love to know what your definition or your understanding of self is now because i know that's quite contentious in all different philosophies um, of meditation and and in therapy as well i am a disciple of sam harris which is a word he would absolutely hate me using but um uh i'm not i'm not 100% sure with the what the name is of the meditation type that he teaches. I know it stems from Theravada Buddhism, um, but I know that he teaches that the self is an illusion. And I remember doing a meditation with him once where <clears throat> he asked, you know, notice if there's a, there's a sense that your self is up in your head, probably somewhere behind your eyes, maybe your forehead, if you feel like this is where you reside. And I went, yep, that's me. And he encouraged us to 
notice that that in itself is just a, a thought and the idea that the self doesn't exist anywhere. And I remember having this feeling as though I existed as much in my fingers and my toes as I did my forehead, and then I didn't exist in my body at all, which was a really challenging way of seeing myself, especially if I do identify with all the labels, but also my my body and the, the, the story that I tell myself. You know, what you've mentioned kind of reminds me in therapy um, of what we call the true self, that really intuitive inner knowing that doesn't need to be thought about or figured out. It just comes from this place of softness and stillness. Um, what's your understanding of the self? You know, I know Sam Harris says there's not even a self to transcend, so self-transcendence isn't a thing. <laughs> okay, so yeah, just to speak to that point briefly, when I talk about transcending the sense of self, mm. you're transcending the familiar sense of self. The okay. familiar sense of being Jimmy right here, right now, definitely feels like there's just somebody here doing stuff in control of stuff. So if you're going to transcend something, that's what you transcend. Um, but you can look at the nature of self in a couple of different ways. So the one way I like is to notice that there is not one um, sort of continuous personality. We tend to have um, a number of different sub-personalities, mm -hmm. all jostling for position, uh, depending on the situation. And that's why we do these things where we'll kind of have conversations with ourselves. You know, I'll, I'll say to myself, oh, I think I might go and eat that chocolate in the fridge. Oh no, I better not. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get fit. Oh, go on. It's only a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and one of my sub-personalities say, is saying, Hey, have some pleasure now. Let's, let's have some pleasure now. Another one is saying, no, uh, you'll be better off having some pleasure in the long term when you don't do that thing, eat that junk food or whatever. And this is also why we find ourselves saying, Oh, I can't believe what I said. Uh, yesterday to that person. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, you weren't doing it. It was one of your other sub-personalities. So you're kind of like a colony in that way. So you can use meditation to have these kind of insights, which are quite surface level, about the fact that there really is no central controller in there who is uh, making all the decisions in the way that it seems. Um, it certainly feels that way because thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of your metacognition, so your thoughts about your thoughts, self-referential thoughts, it all just kind of um, comes together and it tangles up and it creates this sense of self that feels very fixed, very solid. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's an activity. It's constantly shifting and changing all the time. And we can notice that quite easily if I think who I was 10 years ago and how it's changed to now. But I don't think of it as being, I'm different to yesterday. <laughs> but it definitely is more like something that's shifting and changing all the time. Mm -hmm. This becomes quite noticeable in meditation, especially doing insight practices where you start to recognize, oh, okay, there is no, no, some, nobody in there choosing the thoughts necessarily. They're just arising and passing away, arising and passing away. Um, so you can certainly get to know yourself on that level and anybody can do that. Mm. But also you've mentioned this other kind of self, the self with the big S, mm. the one that's uh, talked about in Hinduism. And that is the self that I was talking about in the moment of awakening. So when that happens, when the familiar sense of self turns off, 
and this other self shines through, there is a recognition that, oh, this is who I really am, but this is obviously who everybody else is. So in that moment, you your sense, your personal sense of identity, the idea that you were separate from everybody else is completely shattered, completely lost. You you can't go back to seeing the world that way anymore. Mm. Now, I'm aware that this is a subjective experience. So I can't claim to have any deep truth about the nature of experience just because I had this experience. You know, my mind could be playing tricks on me. Um, it's worth mentioning that. <laughs> but the weird thing is, is when you have this experience, you just don't believe that because it just feels so true. You just think, well, I don't really care what anybody says. That is the most true thing that's ever happened to me. Mm. Um, and so from then on, no matter what's going on, you could meet somebody, they could be a real asshole and you don't like them very much. But to you, you think, it's obvious that's just the surface. Clearly that person is the same thing. That thing that woke up in me that day is also awakened them. Mm. And that's your direct living experience from then on. So what I find yeah. so miraculous about this is that so many people have this exact experience on the other side of the world at different times throughout history. They have this common experience when they take plant medicine or whether they take LSD or whatever it is, it's, um, you know, no matter how you came to it, when you get there, the message tends to be quite similar, which is we are all divinely connected by this, this sense of, of self, um, that transcends time and space. Um, and I think it's, it's so beautiful you were um, you're actually reminding me of. Do you know anything about internal family systems? Uh, I've never done it, but I I know what it is, and yeah, yeah that that's similar to what I was talking about with the subpersonalities, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Dr. Richard Swartz was a family therapist, and in working with families, you very quickly notice that families are like an ecosystem, and each person plays their part in contributing to the system. They're each unique part that that responds to the other. And after years of working in family therapy, he realized that within the individual, there was also kind of like this internal family where there is exactly like you said, there's the part of you that says, oh, yeah, let's have some chocolate. And then there's a part of you that says, mm, maybe we shouldn't, you know, we committed to fasting. And then there's another part of you that says, are we really having this discussion again? How hard is it? And then there's another part that says, why are you always so hard on yourself? It's not that big a deal. And then next thing you know, there's all of these parts of you at war and where we often get lost or we're not seeing the situation clearly is when we start to think that we are the person having all of these separate thoughts that, you know, there's the me and then all of these four different streams of ways of looking at it are coming from me. And actually it's a more accurate way to see it as though there's four different parts of me. And in internal family systems, he says that once you become familiar with the nature of your mind, you will see that this is true. Um, there's some meditations that he does, and I'm always shocked by how quickly people just know this to be true once it's shown to them. And then once you start to get familiar with those parts, once they start to trust you as well, because there's a good chance that you haven't acknowledged their existence for the last 30, 40 years, however long you've been alive, you can actually relate to them differently. And 
you almost become like the parent of yourself, right? When there's those parts of you that are at war, which is like, have the chocolate, don't have the chocolate. It's it's the one above it saying, I know that you're both jostling to be in the driver's seat. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. You know, that's the nature of how you work. You both are um, self-interested because you both genuinely believe that you have the best um, plan for my my life. However, you guys are sitting in the back seat and I'm going to be in the driver's seat. You know, I'm going to make my decisions about my life from this place of clarity and awareness. And I think it's amazing, again, how we can start to use these teachings in meditation, whether they come to you intuitively or through a teacher or through therapy, to see ourselves clearly. Mm, I love all of that. Yeah. And um, it makes sense to me now why I've seen a number of other meditation teachers bringing together meditation and internal family systems mm. because they they just go hand in hand because mm. meditation unifies the mind and brings these subpersonalities together and gives you a awareness of what's going on under the surface so by having this way of looking at it you've you know you've got the theory meditation gives you the practice and mm. um yeah i can i can see how that works quite nicely and even after a big awakening moment like i talked about a real life-changing moment you can still have all sorts of um difficulties with your personality and your psyche and the surface level and your thinking process it doesn't automatically take care of all the problems in your conditioning mm. so even after awakening these things can be really useful because there's all sorts of shadows hiding in your psyche that need to be looked at need to be figured out there's all sorts of real world problems you still need to deal with um <laughs> even if you you see the world in this new way you still have to, you know, pay the mortgage and deal mm -hmm. with all these things that you have to deal with every day. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you do have to take a, 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 a broad approach. You know, it's um, working working with the mind in any way is going to improve your life because mm -hmm. it's just going to help you to move through challenges with more ease or clarity. Mm. Yeah, I have to say you're still selling me. Um, so this took such a turn and I feel like I want to bring it back to, to making it really practical for people, but I have one more question that I have to throw at you purely out of my own curiosity. Um, given where you are on your journey with meditation and having this enlightened experience, do you have any thoughts on the afterlife? Good question. Well, from my perspective, this is going to sound a little bit odd to people who've never heard this before, but before awakening, it would have seemed to me like, oh, it would be cool if I died and the Jimmy character in some way carried on. But in awakening, the the Jimmy character um, is seen to be um, something that arises because of an activity going on in the mind that... Uh, the intellect. It's a creation of the intellect. And what was recognized in that moment was, oh, the real, um, who I really am, my real identity is this other thing, this pure consciousness, this, this pure awake presence that had always been overlooked my entire life, but is now at the forefront of experience. This is mm. who I am. Mm. And this, this kind of awake presence is also seen to be everyone else and everything else. 
it's not there's nothing personal about this it's just what everything is that clearly can't die that thing that seems to be outside of time space cause and effect and so i assume that when this body dies that's the end of that this when this brain dies this particular pattern of thinking that's mapped out in there will also die but that pure awake presence will never die but i'm i am assuming that it will be the end of the jimmy character mm. um but <laughs> that's okay cuz it's um it's it's like a, a flower dying or you know something like that it's it has its time in the world of cause and effect but it's time for it, it to pass on so i don't really think of it as being me jimmy that goes to another another plane of existence or anything like that but there is an element of something here which is beyond birth and death that's the way i see it thank you so much because you just put words to this very um unordered sense that i had within myself so I knew that my intuition to poke you for that question was correct. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I just love the phrase, this creation of the intellect, you know, that that's what the self is. Um, and the idea that, yes, that will, that will come to its end. Um, and that's how, that's the nature of how it should be. But that, that consciousness, um, you know, the fishbowl, that um, consciousness is you know that's and that in and of itself can't be destroyed or died it just returns back to wherever it came from if it came from anywhere yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and and in uh, in zen they say to have this experience this awakening is to die before you die mm. so it is it does feel a little bit like that you get to look behind the curtain that's what it feels like and you just the in that moment of awakening from that particular perspective the idea of birth and death seems kind of ridiculous it doesn't it doesn't seem like a big deal <laughs> yeah um so i should point out though that after a after a while the normal sense of self returns and the um, normal sense of being you returns and so if say for example something happened where i now found out i was going to die in three months or something you know i had some terrible disease then even though i've had this experience and even though i can talk in this way which is so you know nice and poetic there would still be a lot of fear here there would still be dread here there would still be worry because the the belief in the Jimmy character is still really, really strong, you know? So although there's been this shift and that's changed things, there is also this, this other aspect of wanting to cling on to this life and wanting to get tangled up in this life. Mm -hmm. And so it feels a little bit like you have a foot in two different rooms. You're standing in a doorway and there's a foot in two different rooms. There's the room of being Jimmy and there's the room of infinite consciousness. And it's very strange because certain situations will make me contract more one way or the other. If mm. I'm meditating, I go much more towards um, letting go of the Jimmy character and just kind of melting into infinite consciousness. 
And if I'm in a situation which is very stressful, there'll be a big contraction and Jimmy will come online quite heavily Mm -hmm. and infinite consciousness will be overlooked, (laughs) you know, while I've forgotten to fill in my visa before going on holiday or something and I panic, I'm going to miss my flight. And suddenly infinite consciousness goes into the background (laughs) and uh, Jimmy very much switches on and has a panic. So, um, yeah, you... Is it is very odd. It's a very unusual way to experience life. Definitely better. So I would say for anybody that feels called to do it, um, go for it. Um, and of course, there are people who've taken this much, much further than me, where mm-hmm. they really have just got to a place where they are really just the the infinite side all the time, and the activity of personality is is still happening but their experience is just looking from this this other place all the time but that that's not me i'm not i'm not at that point so i can only talk from this perspective one thing i will say one thing i'll say before i forget is the sam harris app okay i have a thing about this i think it's actually pretty cool right so i i like i i had a listen to it i think he's got some good teachers on there i think there's some good guided meditations but the one thing that I worry about with Sam is I feel like he can give the impression that if you simply understand this nature of consciousness, like you explained with the fishbowl, then that means you're awake. You've got it. Okay. And I wish he would put more emphasis on the idea that that's not it. Like in order to have the awakening, you need to be in the place of don't know mind. So it's my teacher Shinzen says it's don't know mind plus equanimity equals the wisdom function, this Mm. inner wisdom that can switch on that comes from somewhere else. And that's why people use Zen koans and things like that. These questions that can't be cracked by the intellect. So it's hanging around in the space of, I don't know the answer to the question, who am I? I've looked and looked and looked but I cannot find who I am. I simply can't find it. It's just not here, but I'll keep hanging around in this place and I'll be open and I will intend to know. And then when it happens, it's like lightning strikes. It's like, Mm -hmm. clearly I didn't do it. I didn't work anything out. It just happened. Mm -hmm. And that's why all these old stories in Zen are so strange because it says, you know, Milarepa sat down in his cave after meditating to eat a bowl of rice And he dropped the bowl and it smashed and he was awake. Mm. You could fixate on the rice and the bowl all you want, but it wasn't that. (laughs) It's a sudden awakening. And all these old stories have that, you see. And it seems to come from nowhere. It's just, you know, some people would say it's grace. Now, I don't know what it is, but I I know that it can happen if you you sort of um, hang around in these spaces and you you try and make this happen and you do the practices, it, it certainly can happen to any ordinary individual. Mm. It doesn't happen to super yogis. You don't have to be good at sitting in the yogi posture or anything like that. It's it's uh, something that can just break through. Mm. It sounds as though it's this intuitive arising that happens. You know, the bowl smashes on the floor and, and suddenly everything becomes clear. Do you have a sense of where that arises? Does it arise in the mind? Does it arise in the body? Does it arise elsewhere? No, it's completely it's completely beyond explanation. Yeah. 
Um, but there's certainly no separation between uh, mind, body, mm. inside, outside when it comes to this. It just feels like, um, yeah, it's just it's just completely a different way of being that's so, so different from how you mm-hmm. normally are mm-hmm. um but at the same time so so familiar and so obvious mm. it's it's very unusual mm. um but certainly available to the people who feel called to go looking for it mm. so in terms of what you were saying about uh sam harris i just want to see if i'm understanding this clearly that um your understanding or your experience with his work as well as your teacher is that he's, for want of a better word, selling the notion that the awareness that you are not the self is the answer in and of itself. It's almost as though it doesn't go far enough because it's about, okay, well, what do I do once I'm connected to true Jimmy, true Rachel, um, you know, practically, how does this change my experience of life? Is that is that what you're saying? That it's not the goal, yeah. it's the, the path? <laughs> yeah, it's a funny one. It, it's not necessarily a criticism of Sam uh, that he's being disingenuous. It's simply that he hasn't, He by his own admission, he hasn't had the Ken show. He hasn't had the Satori. So if you go listen to Ajishanti, for example, one of the guys on his app, He's talking from this place that I'm talking from, although he's way ahead because he would have had this 30 years ago. So mm. he'll speak about it in in a way that's a bit more mature than me. Um, but yeah, so that's the difference. So Sam's talking from his perspective of what being awake means to him and what being awake means to him is recognizing the fact that there's... Um, no separate self here in in his experience when Mm. he looks for it whereas um other people will talk from the universal self because that's been the experience that's broken through okay um so so yeah i just kind of worry sometimes that people will uh think that they get it just because they get it intellectually Mm. because you could Mm -hmm. easily you could Mm -hmm. easily have two people sitting there saying the same thing one has had the uh the awakening and one hasn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they both understand it intellectually in the same way oh absolutely i mean people can talk about therapy stuff all the time there's a very big difference between knowing something intellectually and having an embodied experience of of the exact uh of the same thing um I remember just going back to what you were saying about, you know, um, character Jimmy coming online. I remember Sam was doing a debate. Um, and if you don't know Sam Harris, he's he's one of the four horsemen. He's like a quite a prolific atheist and does a lot of debates. And he was debating. He was in some kind of a long four-hour debate. It was getting really heated, really passionate. And for four hours he sat and he couldn't be you could, from what he was, from how he looked, he didn't look like he was getting triggered at all. His voice didn't rise once. You couldn't feel any tension on him. And I just remember all the YouTube comments were like, this is a four hour ad for meditation. Like, <laughs> you know, if you weren't convinced, look at how he held himself for the for the whole four hours. And I was like, yeah. Um, okay. Thank you so much for indulging all of my, uh, my, my curiosities about uh, meditation. I'm do want to take this back and make it really practical for people. I want them to be able to walk away with something. Um, 
So before we start transcending the character and connecting to divine self, where can someone start? If someone's like, all right, I'm on board, where would you suggest that they start? I would usually ask a person, what is it you want to get out of this? Is it you want to be more present? You want to understand yourself on a deeper level? Um, You want to be more tuned in to what's going on in the senses, more alive in the senses? Or is it that you have a specific problem, like you're having trouble sleeping? Um, you, You need to deal with stress, that kind of thing. And usually from that, I can figure out um, what will be the best way to go? And usually when I speak to people, I'm going to say, hey, look, I think you should maybe try the mantra meditation. That's the most restful, most calming uh, way to go for what you're looking for. Or I might say, oh, actually, mindfulness is what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm biased because those are the two things that I teach, you see. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's coming from that lens. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, for some people, the mantra meditation is perfect because you sit down, you're quiet, it's very effortless, it's very simple, and it's like taking a little break from the world and resting your attention in yourself in this very easygoing way, and you get into a state of deep relaxation, and mm. that's just exactly what some people need. But some people like to be a bit more active in the meditation, and so I teach them something called see, hear, feel, which mm. is essentially a mindfulness practice where you just allow your attention to drift, but wherever it goes, you um, tune into that in a mindful way. Mm. Um, That's the other practice that I kind of teach. Um, And for some people, they really love that, that that's just what suits them. And you can also you don't have to choose one necessarily. Some people do both of my courses and some people learn and practice lots of different techniques. So it depends what a person is looking for. So get clear on what it is that you want out of meditation. And then when you know that, then you can decide which will be the right technique or practice for you. And if you're unsure, then you can literally just start by sitting quietly, breathing and paying attention to the sensations that arise as you breathe. I mean, people have been doing that for thousands of years and certainly works quite nicely. Mm. I think what people find, though, is it's not as easy as it sounds. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You start doing that and suddenly you're up in your head thinking about stuff, thinking without meaning to think. And that's when they start seeking some help from guided meditations and teachers. Yeah. I remember my yoga teacher when we were learning a specific kind of meditation. I can't remember if this was his experience or if this is a story he was told. So if you've heard this story and it wasn't his experience, forgive me, but it was something, you know, like he was learning to meditate and, you know, it was his first time and very quickly his mind took over and wouldn't let him meditate. Now, if you're not watching, I'm doing air quotes. Um, and he went to his teacher and he said, I can't meditate. You know, my, as soon as I start to watch my breath, my mind takes over. And the teacher went, what? What do you mean? Like, that's, that's odd. I've never heard of that before. And he was like, oh, my God, I'm broken. And the teacher starts laughing. And he's like, you know, the fact that you realize that your mind took over is the meditation. You're doing it well. And he went, oh, you know, because that's the number one thing that you will say <laughs> when you meditate for the first time, which is my mind wouldn't shut up, you know? And if you think, oh no, my mind didn't shut up. I'm not doing it right. That's, 
I guess, a misunderstanding of meditation. The fact that you noticed that when you try to anchor your awareness to something, the mind wanted to jump in and take it elsewhere is the practice. Um, and I remember there was something that a teacher of mine told me that just allowed my, oh my God, my whole body just dropped and my mind and my soul just dropped this tension, which was, you know, when you notice that your mind is running around and thinking about dinner and that stupid thing you said back in 2005 and, you know, what it is that you need to do when you get home, that's not a broken mind. It doesn't mean that your mind isn't disciplined. It doesn't mean that your mind isn't working properly. Your mind is actually working as it was supposed to. We evolved and the brain evolved to think, to problem solve, to plan, to um, you know, run multiple tracks at the same time. And the fact that that will do that, it's not something that you want to get into a fight with. You know, the goal is not to stop the brain from doing what the brain does. It's about learning to have a different relationship to that. So yeah, if you do decide after this to sit down and watch, don't be surprised when your mind starts pulling out the, uh, the top 10 hit records. Yeah. <laughs> Well, have- yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. But funnily enough, funnily enough, I was going to say I, I like to um, start people with mindfulness in a place where they start to see that clearly and deconstruct that what you've just talked about. So rather than have people focus on the breath, I do this thing called see, hear, feel, mm-hmm. and what it means is that they can meditate on anything. So it could be the breath. That's fine, but then they're going to have thoughts at some point. But rather than just thinking, oh, I'm having thoughts, I'll say, what is the nature of those thoughts? What is Mm -hmm. actually happening? And so a thought will always be something like uh, an image projected onto the screen in your mind, or it might be a burst of mental talk. You're Mm -hmm. talking to yourself in your head without meaning to. And so you try and cut that identification from I'm talking to myself to, oh, there is a voice in my mind that's saying something. Mm. And so um, what you do is you you give somebody three labels, see, hear, and feel. And they sit there, they do nothing and just see what comes up and then just label it. So if a thought comes up, which is an image in the mind, ah, that's a seeing experience. It's internal, not external, but it's in my mind. So, okay, see. Now the uh, a voice in my mind, okay, hearing experience internal Mm -hmm. uh okay now nothing's happening back to the breath ah Mm -hmm. another image in the mind and so on and so forth and so you just start labeling anything that can happen to you will come under one of those labels see here or feel so you just keep labeling everything see here feel see here feel see here feel and you'll start to cut the identification with being the one who's actually doing it Mm -hmm. and realizing it's all just doing itself Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so if you're not doing it then that will um, start to lead you towards the deeper realization that you're not those things. You are something else. You're the space in which that's happening. And that's the beginning of uh, insight into the nature of self or no self. Yeah. And I do just want to make a note, you know, I know we started off going into the really deep, juicy stuff. Um, And I know it can be tempting to think that that is the goal of meditation that you sit down for your five minutes for the first time. And you're like, why have I not 
connected to my divine self and then transcended the character. It's, you know, you know, it's easy to, to, um, it's easy to look forward and, and to, to search and to desire those really big experiences with meditation. Um, but like you've said so many times, you know, it's, it's a practice, you know, it's, if you want to be good at, at basketball, it's, it's, you know, before you start shooting hoops from like halfway down the court, you have to learn how to dribble the ball. You know, you also have to, even before that, you have to learn that, you know, you have a set of legs and you can walk and your hands can do this thing. It's, it's really about peeling back and going back um, right to the beginning and, and understanding, not just intellectually, but like you said, intuitively on a deeper level, the nature of, of your mind. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And we haven't talked about it too much here as well, but it's worth mentioning that sometimes you'll have a meditation experience, which is quite unpleasant. You'll feel difficult emotions. You might have old memories of difficult things from the past coming up. Mm. And people often think, oh, I, I don't want this. This is not what I was looking for. I was looking for peace and calm and insight. And here I am having this terrible time. But actually what they're experiencing is a flavor of purification. Some of that old stuff, that, that old emotional baggage was mm. hanging around in the psyche and in the body, physically in the body, and the meditation is putting you into a state where the mind-body system feels safe enough to bring that stuff up in order to feel it and then let it go, to release it. Mm. So once you know that, you can think, ah, okay, this is actually productive. Even though I'm not enjoying this meditation, something good is happening here. I'm letting go of some old emotional baggage, which has been weighing me down. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the biggest things I find um, useful to teach people straight up because once they realize that's what's happening, then they stop being so fixated on having a, a good meditation and mm. realize that any meditation is is useful even when it's not always pleasant. Mm, yeah, I remember I was doing, I was feeling so overstimulated and frustrated and I was terrible to be around and I was like, all right, I'm going to go sit down and, and meditate. And my God, within three minutes, my rage went from like a, a seven to a 17. I was like on fire. And I was like, this is not what I intended. And immediately started to jump into the, well, meditation's not working and something's wrong with me. But, you know, the practice there was being able to sit with the discomfort. And, and when I sat with it for long enough, um, I think I, I started to realize what it is that was making me so overstimulated. You know, it it kind of could burn bright enough for me to see what it really was, which, you know, wasn't about the dog, you know, nonstop barking next door or all the emails that I had to send. It was, you know, this thing that was looking for attention that I was yet to address that was kind of making itself manifest in this this way that it was uncomfortable enough to get my attention. So, yeah, you know, welcoming that discomfort and allowing that that fire to burn. This is one thing I'm sure you hear it all the time. I'm, I've probably said it before, but if someone is uh, doesn't have much time, you know that they can't do a you know a 20 minute practice for whatever reason, especially if they have kids or um, you know life is busy. Do you have any suggestions for ways or small ways people could integrate mindfulness or any of the things that you teach and have learnt yourself into their daily life? Yeah, sure. So in the mindfulness course that I teach, I give two strategies that you can use 
outside of normal sitting practice. And I call those background practice and micro hits. So a micro hit is any amount of meditation that you do in any situation that is less than 10 minutes. And it can be anything. It can be 10 seconds, you know. So that would be literally sat at your desk. You you take a moment and yeah, just one conscious breath where you pay attention to the sensations that arise for one breath, that would be a micro hit. Mm -hmm. Well, what some people do is they say, right, every time uh, I go and make a cup of tea, I'm going to do that in a mindful way. So I'm going to take my attention down into my body, pay attention to the sensations of walking to the tea room, the sounds around me, what I'm seeing, you know, pretty much what I explained before, see, hear, feel. I'm going to see, hear, feel my way through this experience and not be caught up in thoughts about past and future. Mm. And this would be a micro hit. So these are really useful. You can bring these into your life at any time, any situation. Then you've also got what I call background practice. And that's where most of your attention is on the task. It could be any task. It could be work or you could just be watching Netflix or something in the evening. But you put some of your attention, like let's say 10% on a technique. And that will allow you to bring some meditation into your life, even when you're doing something else. So let's say I'm sat there, I'm watching Netflix with my wife, but also a small amount of my attention is just on the fact that I'm breathing slowly and I'm paying attention to my breath just quietly in the background while I'm doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are ways to bring meditation into your life in these ways. The transformation will be a lot slower and the impact mm -hmm. will be a lot less than if you're actually sitting in stillness um, and giving all of your attention to these practices. You certainly won't get the biological shifts that you might get if you say sit with a mantra for 15 mm. minutes, but it's worth bringing in because it makes your life more meditative and it will take you out of the stories that the mind tells. It will stop you um, habitually projecting into the future or the past, and it will make you more alive in the senses and more connected to your body. So it's mm. definitely worth doing those things. So what would you say or recommend is a ideal meditation routine for someone who is happy to dedicate a little bit of time to it, that isn't curious about themselves, that does want to be able to shift their inner world into a different state. What would that have to look like um, practically in terms of a routine? Okay. So what worked for me initially and what I still teach now to plenty of people um, is what that Indian yogi that we started out talking about mm. at the beginning um, who brought uh, mantra practice from the Himalayas to the West. He started teaching people 20 minutes twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning before breakfast, and 20 minutes anytime after lunch is digested, so the afternoon or the evening. And I found that that had a really profound effect on me, and the people that I've taught, it has a really profound effect on them. It seems to be short enough that you can fit that into a busy lifestyle, but it's long enough. So it has a really big impact on the mind body system. Mm -hmm. And that's why lots and lots of famous celebrities do that kind of meditation because it is just something they can fit in, but it's really powerful um, to help somebody who has a, a lot of pressure and a very packed um, schedule 
mm-hmm. to help them move through their day with ease and calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that giving people that kind of strict 20 minutes twice a day at this time, um, that those kind of rules, so to speak, I find that people will will stick to that quite easily. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sometimes if you say to people, oh, just fit it in when you can, then um it would be easily overlooked but if you give them quite a strict okay go for it 20 minutes twice a day every day do that for three months and then reassess see how you feel Mm. and within three months usually people will say oh I I feel a big difference doing this Mm. and I think there's something really powerful about doing it first thing in the morning because you don't then push it out later in the day just like you do exercise like just you know, eat the frog in the morning, get it done. (laughs) So you don't come up with excuses. You don't let life get in the way and um, make you too busy. Um, uh, I'm so curious about your, the mantra that was provided to you behind a secret door. And now I am cognizant of the fact that it was provided to you behind a secret door. So you might not be willing to share if you're like, if you were had to take a blood oath or something, I don't know how that went down. But um, do you have any mantras that people could start with or that you have found quite powerful yourself? Oh, it's a good question because actually if people ask this question, what I say to them is, look, it takes a little bit of instruction to get to understand how to do the mantra meditation. Gotcha. I mean, sure, you could, you could chant OM or something if you like. But if you want to learn how to transcend, if you want to have this experience that I've been talking about with a mantra, then you really do need a teacher. So if a person says, okay, well, I'm not at that place at this point, I would say you're better off um, meditating on your breath or something like that, Um, because there's not really too much nuance to worry about with meditating on the breath. Whereas with the mantra, you, you could easily get it wrong and end up just kind of wasting your time because with the mantra it's all about being effortless so it takes a few days for me to get people to that place where they're really being effortless with the mantra Mm. Um, so that's why the course is four days long you see whereas anybody can just sit breathe and pay attention to the sensations that arise as they breathe Mm -hmm. um, without hardly any instruction you know Mm -hmm. or there's plenty of videos on youtube and things like that Mm Um, so that's, that's the way to go about it. Yeah. I would say you, if you're going to do the mantra, you want to get the, uh, the proper instruction, but if you're not there yet, um, go with the mindfulness. I have some mindfulness videos, um, on my Instagram and stuff that people can use if they, if they just want to get a taste of this without doing a course or paying for anything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll link everything in the uh, show notes below if people want to find you. Um, I feel as though I have picked your brain for long enough and you have been very generous with your time. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you feel that you would like to touch on? Anything that you think has been unsaid that would be quite helpful? Um, Nothing comes to mind. No, I think we've had a really full conversation and I've really enjoyed it because we've gone right across the board from uh, the mental health side to <laughs> the full-on enlightenment awakening experience side. Um, so yeah, there's a lot for people to to pick through there. I think. Yeah. So oh, no, yeah. there's nothing that stands out to me that's uh, been unsaid. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is a meaty one. Um, I, I had a sense it would, um, it would turn out like this. Well, I wrap up every interview with one question and it's that I believe that everything in life happens uh, for us and not to us. And all of these experiences we have, if we know how to dance with them correctly, can lead us to greater insight about ourselves and the world. So what is one thing that life has taught you about yourself lately? What has life taught me about myself? Let's see. Well, I suppose based on this conversation, life has taught me that I'm not who I thought I was. Mm. Uh, I'm not the uh, the familiar sense of being a Jimmy character that was um, that was always there. A more true version of uh, a more true essence of what I am is really this kind of um, infinite awake presence that was revealed to me in a moment mm. on a meditation retreat um not that long ago just earlier this year actually so these insights that i'm sharing with you now are, are relatively new fully enough mm. now that you've connected to that um truer version of yourself how does that true version of yourself feel towards character jimmy do you have a relationship is there a relationship between the two absolutely yeah so <laughs> the, the jimmy character is really the lens through which this other thing looks. And so that's what all people are really. So my teacher Shinzen, he's a, an eight year old um, former Shingon monk. He wrote a famous book called The Science of Enlightenment. Mm. And um, he sometimes talks about this as um, where the, the, the character who you take yourself to be is kind of the puppet. And in a moment of enlightenment, the puppet becomes aware that there's a formless puppeteer operating behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, there's very much, there's, there's definitely um, a relationship between the two because infinite consciousness is expressing itself um, in the world of cause and effect through, mm -hmm. the, uh, through the character of who each person is. So it's not that you, you suddenly become enlightened and you, you decide to throw away the, the the person you are no it's um you you just see it from a different a different place and in a different way but the activity of personality still carries on pretty much as before all the preferences carry on same as before likes and dislikes you could even get somebody who's really highly awakened um and also might still have loads of shadows and problems that haven't been addressed so it's not as black and white as people as think but it's a very real thing that can happen to people mm. um if they go looking for it <laughs> well i'm so grateful that you gave me and all of us so much of your time and your insight i think um you know people who voluntarily walk the path themselves and you know leave the door open so to speak for other people um do such a service to this world so Thank you so much. Um, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, you could look at my website, which is delvedeep.com, or you can find me on Instagram as that meditation guy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty easy to find on there. Mm -hmm. And that's it, really. Um, if you want to kind of get to know me, the best, the easiest way is to subscribe to my emails. I send three emails a week, and they're usually just whatever is in my head on any given day. So sometimes it's science of meditation, sometimes it's some tips, sometimes it's some 
Zen story or poem, just whatever is interesting me that week. Mm -hmm. And I've been writing those for, for years. Um, but yeah, or follow me on Instagram. It's, it's completely up to the person what, what, uh, what they're into. Yeah. And if people want to work with you, that's an option as well, right? You do courses. Yeah, that's right. I do two courses. One is called Deep Calm, and that's teaching the mantra meditation. That's the meditation that changed my life in the early days. And then much later, I got into all of this other side of it, the mindfulness, the insight, the looking at the nature of self, getting to know yourself at the deepest level. I teach a course called Deep Insight, which covers that. And um, they're, they're the two main sort of avenues that I go down. Some people do both courses or some people feel like, well, no, I'm already into mindfulness. So I'll do this mindfulness course. Mm. Some people say, oh, I just want to sleep better. So I'll do the mantra course. Mm -hmm. um, but if anybody's confused about that, they can just DM me and I'll, I answer all the messages or they can email me. Yeah. So um, I'm happy to guide people to the right place. Perfect. Thank you for listening to the Yogi Therapist Podcast. If you enjoyed what was discussed today, then consider subscribing and leaving a review. Check out the show notes for any additional information about what was covered here today. And you can find me at theyogitherapist.com.au or on Instagram at theyogitherapist underscore for more information on me and my therapy. Until next time.